From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode is Professor Eric Watkins at the University of Minnesota, where he is both a professor of plant breeding and the vice provost of the new office of distributed learning. I know Eric as a breeder. I'm also married to a breeder. My wife breeds pigs uh, at our farm. So I, I have, uh, as I said, intimate relationships with people who are breeders. And what I wanted to start with is what I notice about all of you, and that is you're very detail-oriented. My wife likes puzzles. A lot of breeders I know, watching them through research, needed to be very meticulous about the way they did things. And I'm wondering, what was it in your background when you realized you wanted to do or pursue this line of work that you think made you detail-oriented and, and the really successful breeder that you are right now? Well, I think the thing that probably drove me the most was when I was uh, growing up, I was in 4-H and I had a vegetable garden and exhibited the fair and things like that. And... Probably sometime when I was in maybe junior high or high school, I really started thinking that I would be interested in studying plant breeding genetics. And at the time, I really thought it would be fascinating to work on apples. I kept pursuing that, and then it led to going to the university to study plant breeding and eventually graduate school. And that, at that time, between undergraduate and graduate schools, when I started working on turf grass. But as plant breeders, you're trained in such a way that you should be able to work on any plant species or crop that you might be interested in. But I, I've, I've been interested in improving plants through breeding genetics for quite some time. And so when you were a kid in 4-H, and I'm assuming in Minnesota, yes? Minnesota, yeah. Yeah. When you were in 4-H, did you compete in the contests? Like Jim Snow, the late Jim Snow, who was a pal of mine, was a competitive Chrysanthemum Society member and would talk a lot about his interest in, in floriculture. Jim studied floriculture a bit when he was at Cornell. Uh, was that sort of the 4-H stuff you like doing? Yeah, so the way it works is you would exhibit at the county fair. So I grew up in western Minnesota and exhibited at the Candy Ohio County Fair. And at a certain age, I think it was when you got to be 12, if you were the grand champion of the county fair for whatever you're exhibiting, so in this case, vegetables, if you're the grand champion of the county fair, then you got to exhibit at the state fair. And that was a really big deal because... <laughs> Not only did you exhibit at the state fair, but you got to come down to the state fair and live at the state fair for a couple of days and hang out with your friends. So um, that was a, a big thing when you were able to get the grand championship at the county uh, county fair and then go to the state fair. So yeah, I did that through most of you know junior high and into high school. I would uh, exhibit at the county fair and then the state fair. Did you have particular plants that you were an expert at? Uh, I wouldn't. Say I was necessarily an expert when you at uh, any one plant, but uh, when you exhibit vegetables for the state fair, at least in, in Minnesota, you have to have several different species in your exhibit. So you got to make sure you're good at growing a few things. They're different categories based on size. So maybe you grow some green beans to exhibit, and maybe some carrots and peppers and cabbage or something like that. So you'd have to make sure your garden was fairly diverse, had a, a number of species. And the other, the tricky part was having things ready when it was time to exhibit. So they had to be ready in early August for the county fair. And then if you did well there, they had to be ready in late August uh, for the state fair. So you'd stagger planting times and things. Plant breeding complements sound nutrient management. And sound nutrient management programs are what the plant food company is all about. You see their products represented at major events when the spotlight is on high-quality turf. But they're also plant food products that are affordable and effective for everyone. Learn more about these exciting products at plantfoodco.com or follow them on Twitter at plantfoodco. 
So you had the opportunity to, I'm assuming, take some courses at Minnesota. Did you graduate with a bachelor's in plant breeding or did that not come around till later? Uh, what I took was, it was a degree called science and agriculture. It was sort of a pre-graduate degree in agriculture. So I took it because I was interested in going to graduate school for plant breeding. There's not a lot of uh, especially at that time, there were not a, a lot of undergraduate programs that specifically were called plant breeding or plant genetics. Most of that happens at the graduate level. But we had a pre-graduate degree at the University of Minnesota, and I took that. And then as I was close to finishing that up, I started looking for graduate schools. And while I was an undergraduate, I got a part-time job during the school year and then a full-time job during the summer working for Dr. Nancy Elke in agronomy. And her program was doing a little bit of turf grass breeding, more in the context of improving grasses for turf grass seed production. So I, I really found breeding turf grass is interesting because there's this subjective aspect to it. So it's not just, you know, figuring out which one has the biggest yield or, or, you know, weighing the crop. There's this subjective element. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And that led me to seek out graduate programs that might fit my interest in turf grass breeding. And that's how I ended up at Rutgers. And there you go. I'll just comment. I got to meet Nancy Elke, I think when she first started at Minnesota, because I was at Wisconsin with Mike Kassler at the time, and Nancy was starting the sort of ryegrass winter stuff in the turf grass area. Is she still active uh, in the area? Yeah, she's still active, and we collaborate oh. quite a bit now. So oh, this is great. Her program really does a great job of working with uh, turfgrass seed producers in far northern Minnesota, so way up on the Canadian border. There's about, depending on the year, maybe forty to 60,000 acres of grass seed production, turfgrass seed production up there. And uh, she does a really great job of leading the program to help those farmers grow really profitable crops. Well, I mean, certainly Nancy had an impact on you, but it's hard to overestimate the impact of the collaborative environment you walked into in Rutgers. Was Reed Funk still around then or had he already passed it on to Bill? So he was still around, but he had passed on the turf grass breeding work to Bill Meyer. Bill Meyer had gotten there a few years before I came. Bill Meyer was my advisor, but Dr. Funk was still there, and I think that was really valuable to get his wisdom and advice on top of all the other great training oh, I yes. got at Rutgers. So yeah, yeah. And uh, he, of course, was a wealth of information. Oh, my yeah, God. Stacey I'm... and I were students at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really great environment. And I, I believe, because I bumped into him a couple of times, I got to know Reed Funk because he was pals with Dick Scogley. When I did my master's with Dick at the University of Rhode Island in the mid-'80s, they were old pals because they shared a disdain for Deutsch. <laughs> and they would, they would come up and talk about their disdain for Dr. Deutsch. Uh, nevertheless, wasn't Reed Funk doing chestnuts at the time? Yeah, he was doing a lot of nut tree breeding. That was his real passion. He really tackled it as if it was turf grass breeding. Yeah. I mean, they would put out thousands of trees. did really great work in sort of turf grass breeding retirement in the world of nut trees. So, yeah, he was still very active. And he would still come out and select bluegrass hybrids, things like that, but he was mostly doing tree work at that time. So working at Rutgers the way you did, did you get involved in things beyond your graduate work, bump into Rich Buckley, teach at the two-year program, do some extension work? Obviously, you probably participated in field day, maybe at least the one at Adelphia over the years. Talk a little bit about that broad experience at a place so excellent as Rutgers. Yeah, so I did not participate in teaching in the two-year program or anything like that, but being present with all the activity that was going on was really useful, and working and having faculty working in other areas of surfgrass science on graduate committees, things like that, was really valuable. And yeah, of course, we participated in the field day events in both New Brunswick and Adelphia, and those are really valuable experiences because the surfgrass industry there, of course, is huge and very diverse and gave a lot of good perspective about 
working with stakeholder groups like that. So that was a really great experience, and they threw us into that uh, right away. You know, right as soon as, soon as you started, you were you were giving uh, field day talks and sharing your research with a wider audience. So how has it been? Because I had the pleasure of doing a similar thing. I left Cornell where there was four or five scientists here when I was a graduate student and then on to Michigan State for the Hall of Fame of Turf, uh, Riki and, and Vargas and Branham, Smitley. There was a whole slew of uh, Saffel and Miltner. There was a whole bunch of people wandering around then. And then I went to Wisconsin where there wasn't maybe too many. And now I'm back at Cornell many years and there's only a few of us left. You went to Minnesota you had some collaboration. I want you to talk about the difference that that broad collaboration you get at Rutgers and how different it is when you're at a place like Minnesota with less. Yeah, so when I came to Minnesota, Brian Horgan was here, and uh, we worked together for a number of years before he went to Michigan State to be department head. And then Nancy Elke was here, so that was really the collaborative team. But one thing about having a smaller group of turf grass researchers did, for me at least, was seek collaborators outside of turf. So there, mm. there's many problems related to turf grass management or turf grass breeding that solutions might be found in disciplines outside of, you know, just turf grass management, right? So it's not necessary that you only collaborate with turf grass scientists. It's important to think more broadly. Being at a university gives us lots of opportunities mm-hmm. to collaborate with really brilliant people that have expertise. outside of turf grass management or horticulture, agronomy even. So in a way, it's been good to be at a place where there weren't a lot of turf grass faculty because I think it got me thinking about who else could we bring in to collaborate with to tackle some of these issues that we want to work on over the next few years. Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. That's exactly how it's been for us at Cornell, particularly for researchers collaborations with pathologists, climatologists, people who don't know anything about turf. In many cases, modelers now, a lot more data scientists than we used to deal with in the past. But in addition to your research, you've had a really successful career. And I I always uh, think about your virtual reality, augmented reality teaching, you know, you dabbled in anyway, with walking through one of the gardens uh, at Minnesota. I, I always really liked that progressive approach to educating do you still, I mean, you're still doing teaching. That's been a really nice component to your work, I assume, and one you would dedicate a fair amount of time to. Yeah, so my, uh, I was hired to be to do a lot of teaching. So I had originally a 60% teaching appointment. So I've, I've taught a lot over the years, and I've taught mostly turf grass science classes, but as time's gone on, I've also picked up some teaching and plant breeding as well and, and a few other teaching opportunities related to the graduate program. So yeah, I've really enjoyed trying new things in teaching, so teaching online in different ways, different formats. The augmented reality projects, we got some funding from the USDA uh, with a collaborator here at Tom Michaels to do some really early work on, you know, what, what would it take to do this and what are some of the hiccups getting this technology to students. So that was a fun project. Uh, but I've always really been interested in doing that kind of work, trying to think about how we can more effectively deliver content to students, get them thinking more broadly about either plant breeding or turf grass management. So, yeah, I've taught a lot over the years. I actually have a new administrative role coming up now this fall. So actually I'm going to drop my teaching. So it'll be a big shift. But that's been a big part of what I do. And I think teaching a lot, whether it be in turf grass management or in plant breeding, has really helped me think about research ideas, you know, think about ways to tackle uh, research questions. No doubt. We'll take a break in a second, and I promise we won't keep talking about you. We'll talk about the work from here moving forward. Take a minute and talk about this new administrative role that you've assumed, because I want to believe it's not a big loss for us in turf, but I fear, I wonder about that as administrative responsibilities. 
I know especially somebody like you will probably be good at it means you'll be <laughs> moving further and further away from the turf industry. Yeah, so the, the new uh, role is I'll be starting in a couple of weeks here um, as the Vice Provost for Distributed Learning for the University of Minnesota. So the position sort of has responsibilities in terms of strategy and some oversight related to everything uh, related to online learning at the university, not only in the Twin Cities, but then the, we have outstate campuses as well. So it'll replace my teaching role, so I think that'll work just fine. It's a new office that the university wants to start, so we'll be starting from scratch. And I'll be able to maintain our research program. We have really good people uh, on the research team right now, so I don't think that's going to be a problem at all. And Yeah, uh, yeah it'll be a, a fun challenge, a, a new thing to tackle. And I think there's a lot of interesting things we can do, at least in Minnesota, but I think also beyond in terms of workforce development of the green industry, particularly in turf, using online education in a more collaborative way, either within its institutions or, or states, but also between different states. Yeah. And boy, our collaboration in the Great Lakes Turf School is an example of something that I know in New York, we're sending 10 to 12 people out of the workforce every year because we had a culture right. of short courses here in New York for many years. All right. I'm Frank Rossi. I'm chatting with Eric Watkins. This is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Managing for fast and firm playing conditions requires excellent infiltration and drainage, both of which are improved by the use of DryJack services. DryJack sand injection services increases infiltration and allows for deeper rooting and better drainage by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Contact your local DryJack service representative or visit dryjack.com. Okay, I'm back with Eric Watkins at the University of Minnesota. We've wandered through the early and current part of his career. But again, as I wanted to talk about today, Eric, was fine fescue use on golf courses, right? As a general topic, but I want to start out with, you know, how one gets interested in fine fescues. I, I know, in particular, again, working with Dick Scogley, I had a lot of exposure to the family of fine leaf fescues because there were, I think, Jamestown was a classic Chewings. Uh, I think Exeter was a colonial bent. But anyway, Scogley had his hand in a number of grasses like the fine fescues. And really, I, I don't think anybody had much interest in them. I think there was a little bit of interest because of endophytes that was coming from Rutgers. But I don't think anybody sort of done what you've tried to do with it, which is survey people. How do we get people to buy it and then make it better and make it continue to deliver. And it also seems like you've got a little bit of the seed industry support cooked into this. So did this thing for fine fescues come from your work with List in the Midwest, right? The low input sustainable turf, or did you get a hook in it in, in Rutgers? Where did the influence to get this going come from? I'd say the first hook was probably Rutgers. I just thought that the fine fescues, even in that New Jersey environment, were really good grasses for low input environments. They had a lot of really great performance under stressful conditions. So when I started at the University of Minnesota, I really wanted to focus on two things in the breeding program. One was lower input, so you know more low input grasses, need less fertilizer, mowing, water, things like that. And then grasses that were winter hardy, right? Because I'm in Minnesota, we need to make sure that the grasses that are being used are plenty winter hardy. So low input grasses for cold climates. And, and I really saw an opportunity with fine fescues because although there's a number of varieties available and there have been for years, I thought they were really underutilized. You would see them in the landscape, but it was rare that you would see them for sale at the hardware store, for instance, 
Right. And as I began to explore other areas where I thought that they were underutilized, it was just clear that there was a need to do not only breeding work, so there obviously are deficiencies that can be improved, doing research that helped end users see the value of using fine fescues in different contexts. So you mentioned the Low and Sustainable Turf Project, the LIST Project. That's a good example where you know, we put out a bunch of different grasses under really low input environments around the north central region, and the fine fescues did really well. And that just continued to be the case. We put these grasses in tests uh, under low input fairway conditions, and they do really well. And we put them on greens, and they do really well. And we put them in nomo situations, they do well. We put them on roadsides, they do well. So they just continually perform well. Now, as we do that work, we identify weaknesses. And then that's where the breeding program can come in and collaborate with other breeders and researchers around the country to make improvements. So I want you to define for me and put some context around low input. Like you said, roadsides, you said fairways, you said greens. Obviously, lawns are a component of this as well. I need for you to give me some context around how you describe low input, recognizing that it's assuming that there's an accepted level of input and this is less. So talk me through what you mean by low input. And part of where I'm getting at with this, Eric, is that, you know, you describe all these situations where they've been successful under low input, but you and I know if you ask five people what low input, you're probably going to get different ideas depending on assuming it's an area where fine fescue is well adapted. Let's start there where it's, where it's well adapted. Right. Um, so give me some context around uh, low input. When I think about low input, at least then, maybe now too, I, I haven't sat down to define it necessarily, but I think about what is the standard practice for that use, right? So most home lawns in Minnesota are Kentucky bluegrass, and that's requiring a certain level of inputs to look decent, right? So maybe a decent quality lawn of Kentucky bluegrass. If you want to keep that green during the summer, you're going to have to water during droughts. You're going to probably want to put down a couple pounds of nitrogen per year, things like that. If you think about, a, let's say, a golf course green, a low input might be, the low input part might be, sure, there can be lower fertilizer inputs uh, with fine fescues, for instance. Now, fine fescues are not used on greens in Minnesota yet. That's definitely a longer-term thing. But let's let's say they were going to be used on greens, so you should be able to use fewer fertilizers. But I think the big advantage on greens for alternative grasses to creek and bank grass would be disease resistance. Now, with some of the breeding work that has been going on at Rutgers and the Stacey Bonus Program, you know, dollar spots, they're making great improvements. But there's still other things, like if we could reduce snow mold, for instance, and maybe a future with reduced pesticide input options. That's what I think of as low input. A standard fairway that might be grown in Minnesota, let's say a Kentucky bluegrass or creek and bank grass fairway, Maybe you reduce mowings, you know, a certain percentage uh, over the course of the year while reducing uh, fertilizer inputs okay. as Excellent. well. Now, sometimes if you would go like fairways is a good example, yeah. you might reduce that input, but then, you know, there's another input that you replace it with, like filling divots or something. Right. But that's how I kind of think about it. So what's typically used and then what does this alternative bring us? And it's okay. going to change based on the site. Perfect. And I'm glad you... You know, you elucidated a little bit about fairways because that's exactly where I want to go. Because I think fairways in many ways is low-hanging fruit. As you talk about making improvements, you know, mentioning dollar spot, we've seen quite a bit more summer patch in fine fescues than I'm used to. And I want to spend a little time drilling in here a little bit. I want to go into fairways because a primary audience we have is golf course superintendents. And, of course, traffic is one of the topics we're going to cover but I want to start out with the general thing, 
which is, as you've done well in a lot of your scholarly work, can you give us some characterizations of the different species in the families, right? Can you say chewings and creeping red? Yeah, those are, you know, lawns, more fertilizer, and then hard and sheeps are less water, less nutrients, blah, blah, blah. Take a minute and try to differentiate some of the family, you know, the ones that we call the fine leaf fescues. Yeah, we can maybe go through a few different traits. It's a little bit unfortunate that we group them all uh, as fine fescues because there's some fairly significant differences in how they perform. So the summer patch issue is an interesting one. I don't think we have a good handle on differences right now. Uh, Depending on where you are in the country, uh, it's going to change the risk of summer patch, the differences on summer patch uh, performance between the different fine fescues. Well, and they've had success in the bluegrasses, which is usually a lot harder to do, is in my understanding. They made a lot of these more heat-tolerant bluegrasses that have started to dominate, I think, the midnight types. A lot of them have really good summer patch resistance, right? Yeah, so like right now... Like if you're growing a home lawn uh, in the Northeast, hard fescue would get, or at least the mid-Atlantic hard fescue would get hammered by summer patch. Mm. But other parts, like if you move into New England, you might see some different results. There, They have made some gains uh, in summer patch resistance and hard fescue in the Rutgers program. So I, I would imagine there'll be some uh, resistant varieties coming up in the next years. But so summer patch is a little complex, but like in Minnesota for dollar spot disease, for instance, strong creeping red gets the most, then slender creeping red, then chewings, and then hard fescue and sheep fescue get little to none. Mm-hmm. Same exact uh, ranking for red thread. Snow mold worked at Paul Cokeston at Wisconsin for pink snow mold. Hard fescue does really well. Chewings fescue does not do very well. Strong and slender creeping red kind of intermediate. Mm-hmm. The work on shade tolerance that Dominic Petrella did yep. when he was here. He's yep. now at uh, Ohio cool State ETI. He did a really great job of assessing how these grasses do under foliar shade. Not yeah, the just, speckled light. That was really right, Not cool. the amount of light, but the quality of light. That's really important. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty clear that the strong creeping red fescue and the chewings were the best, and the hard was probably the, let's say, worst or kind of medium performance under those situations. But if you're growing it next to a tree, the hard fescue is better for drought tolerance than the strong creeping red and the chewing fescue. So it kind of bounces out. And that's why usually in all of these instances I've mentioned, it's a good reason that you mix these together, right? You mix fine fescue together, and then you shift the percentages based on the environment you have. So if you have a shaded environment, you want to up the chewing to the strong. If you have a full sun environment, especially in Minnesota, you would up the hard fescue because it really has very few negatives in our environment because we don't have a lot of summer patch problems. So you're going to mix them all together anyway, and it's just you're going to adjust those percentages based on these uh, tolerances. I shudder to think the answer I'm going to get to this question, (laughs) because it seems complex enough just at the species level. If I get the species right, does the cultivar matter? Because, you know, this turfgrass seed industry is experiencing a bit of a shockwave in the last couple of years for a variety of reasons that's driving down supply and potentially increasing demand. Do cultivars matter if you get species right? The species is by far the most important thing. So they can matter in certain instances, but for fine fescues, mostly if you just get a reasonable cultivar, species is by far more important. Now there's exceptions. You know, you don't want to plant boreal, strong creeping red, for instance. But if it's a variety, I think a lot of times, especially with, with fine fescues, when you're looking at NCEP data, for instance, the most important thing is getting rid of the really worst ones and picking from the you know top 75% rather than worrying about the top 5 to 10%. But species is by far more important than cultivar in all these things that I've talked about. Okay. Now, as the breeding efforts continue, and we saw this with 
creeping bent grass on dollar spot when we first started seeing better varieties, right? There will be specific instances of a variety that has better disease resistance, but we don't have that yet. But that probably be coming in the next couple of years. Okay, let me put you on a spot then about fairways in particular. And I think what you would say in Minnesota wouldn't really be that different for much of upstate New York as you get downstate and into the mid-Atlantic where, you know, you have a lot more urban influences down there. It's warmer, but let's use fairways in our latitude, so to speak. One of the challenges I wonder about using fine fescues is what are the expectations of the golfer? I often think if they really want to green, maybe the fine fescues aren't for them. But I wonder if you would take that same approach where do you think you could blend species if somebody said, we're going to irrigate these fairways, people like green grass, even through the summer in Minnesota, all the way through Michigan and upstate New York into New England. Number one, does that preclude them from using fine fescues? And number two, if not, what would be the the mixture of species you would recommend in a fairway like that? Well, fine fescues in our trials, you know, in Minnesota, at least the color, we can keep the color pretty well on them, even through through drought periods, you know, maybe not extended droughts, but uh, with a little bit of watering, maintaining good green color on the fine fescues isn't, isn't a huge problem here. Now, it might be more of a problem as you get into situations where you've got a lot more heat than we would typically, mm-hmm. uh, typically get here. Mm-hmm. Uh, one mixture that I really like for fairways, colonial bent and fine fescues is a nice combination. And it works really well in a place like Minnesota, too. Colonial bent can sometimes be a little more susceptible to brown patch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't get quite as much brown patch on fairways here as you would mm-hmm. in certain parts of the Mid-Atlantic or Northeast. But mm-hmm. mixing fine fescues with colonial bent grass can be a nice approach. And that also might help with things like divot recovery and a little bit on the traffic side. But mm-hmm. it's a mix that looks really good. The growth habits combine quite nicely. Okay. One of the things, uh, what I'm getting at here, too, is Sometimes we don't have control. Uh, last several years in the Northeast, not this year, sometimes we don't have control. We get too much rain. <laughs> you know, we have three wet years for a dry year right now. Too much water. Obviously, the disease resistance becomes a bigger issue at that time. But I almost feel like the bigger issue is that warm summers that are wet drives a lot of mineralizable N, Eric. And boy, these things keep growing and they sort of... You know, they get puffy and thatchy, and that's some of a problem, too, certainly in lawns. And we don't see them enough in fairways to know. But what is your thought when you've got a lot of extra water in there and you really don't get control of that nitrogen? Does that become an issue with them getting puffy? That's a good question. I've, we have not observed that here, but we don't have that same concern. Here, if we get a really wet situation, we might see some decline. For instance, the hard fescues might not do as well, just that wet soil condition. But we have not observed problems with thatch in a fairway situation yet. A lot of times we put wear on the fairways to test them for wear tolerance. Well, one of the things that does is it takes away the, you know, it helps keep the thatch down, right? And um, so we don't often get a good read on that. I mean, it, it certainly could be a problem. Uh, I'd be more concerned, though, with uh, really wet conditions. The grass is just not being as well adapted to really severely wet conditions. I'd probably be more worried about that than I would be about the excess puffiness. Okay. So on the other side of this are the fast and firm, the whole idea of fast and firm that I think really fits for really good golfers uh, who want a, a fast, firm service. It doesn't have to go as far as the old course might have gone 
this past year at the Open Championship where, you know, it's basically you can smell the grass <laughs> sort of burning underneath. <laughs> I will say it's excellent annual bluegrass control strategy to dry it out like that. But you know, like I know, there's some of this success of these fairways can be related, in my mind, to two things, management and traffic level. So let's take management first because we started talking about some of these things now. What are some of the real keys, again, imagining low input, as you put it in context, what are some of the keys you'd say to superintendents if they're thinking about these things where they think it might be an option for them, what would be some of those management tactics that you would see have to change the most if they were coming from a Bempoa situation? One of the big things, there's two things that are going to be a problem. So if it's a course that has, now traffic will be a problem if there's a lot of golf carts, right? right? The other major problem would be divot recovery. So it, they just don't fill in very well at all. It takes a long time. So you can make a divot, and it'll just sit there for a long, long time. So being on top of filling divots with a good seat mix would be a big thing. I think a lot of times one of the keys to find fescue management is not to overmanage them. You know, just let them be. Uh, a lot of times they benefit from just being left alone and they'll provide that good surface that you're looking for. Especially in a home lawn situation, I see that a lot where there's too much mowing or too much management of a fine fescue lawn where they would just stay off. The end result would be a a much better lawn. Okay, so divot and removal, right, is going to be a big uh, challenge because the recuperative ability of some of these systems. And that's, of course, where putting some fine fescues with colonial bentgrass uh, or some sort of creeping habit that creates uh, at least a network of perennial storage organs that'll regrow, right? You get some bentgrass in there, certainly will help with that. But what we can end on, Eric, is the traffic question, because, you know, from a fairway perspective, carts and fescue, I, I've seen a few of these systems. I saw them at Spanish Bay out west when it was originally considered out there. I've been to Aaron Hills. I've been to High Point, the very first place that Tom Doak did and closed down. That was a wall-to-wall fescue operation. And now I had the pleasure of visiting a couple of times the early stages of Sand Valley. Rob Deem at the helm there, really seeing that being wildly successful. So I know it's possible. Let's leave divot recovery aside. Talk to me about traffic tolerance in this species. Is it as bad as they say or can we manage it in a way that helps it meet our needs? So I would say it is not as bad as they say. So when we've done research on this, I'm always a little surprised, at least earlier was, how well a lot of them mm-hmm. did under traffic. Mm-hmm. And there's differences. Two things. One thing we should remember about the fine fescues and all of these golf course uses is very little to no breeding has been focused on that use. Right, So there's been almost no breeding for a better fine fescue for fairways or a fine fescue that's going to do better on golf greens. Right, So we're, we're taking things that were bred for high-cut turf for home lawns mm-hmm. and we're putting them on a fairway to test them mm-hmm. and use it in that context. But there's not been a lot of work done on breeding fine fescues that fill in areas. They have better rise on the tiller formation or more aggressive rise on the tiller formation. Specifically, it might have been bred for indirectly in different ways but not specifically working on the same thing with wear and traffic tolerance. So some of the work that's coming out of Rutgers that we've collaborated on, I think, I think we can start to see some approaches, at least a better selection of fine fescues for that purpose. I think if you drive a golf cart straight across fine fescues, and you're not turning and making lots of turns with the cart, even under more stressful conditions, it's probably okay. The problem gets to be when you're churning on fine fescue and it's stressed. Mm-hmm. That seems to be kind of the biggest problem. 
But we just haven't given it a lot of attention from the breeding side. And I think we see lots of examples where if it's given a lot of attention by a lot of breeders, I think we can make some pretty good gains. And then if we make some gains on individual cultivar levels and then get the species mixtures correctly, the proportions correct for that environment. So in Minnesota, I might say, well, we want a higher percentage of park fescue because it has better wear tolerance and some disease tolerances. But if, if we get that right, combined with some improvements on the breeding side, I think eventually the, the wear tolerance thing can be even less of, a, of an issue than it is now. But like you said, I think the perception is worse than the reality. However, it's still a concern, right? Yeah. It's definitely a characteristic that needs improvement in the mm-hmm. fine Well, I'll just say, uh, I sat in a New Jersey turf uh, conference about 15, 16 years ago. Stacy was giving a talk about the um, low-input grasses and she made the statement and had a slide that said hard fescue actually had pretty good traffic tolerance, particularly maybe when you kept it on the drier side. I remembered it forever, and I'm glad to hear that that's still something that hard fescue is there. In the meantime, while you guys are improving these things, would you say that that's okay to do? I mean, obviously, any system is better a little on the drier side, but you get hard fescue on the drier side, it starts going off color. Uh, it's not really green anymore. So I'm wondering, management-wise, what kind of advice do you give? Because, you know, you don't necessarily want to give it more in, so to speak, but maybe you do. What can you tell me we can do for now until we get better grasses? I would think giving more in is probably not necessary. I think keeping the hard fescue on the drier side might not be, you know, letting it go brown. So if you're in a situation where the fairway's getting watered, keeping some water on that, but not watering it to such a degree that the soil's moist. So it's still actively growing, not going dormant, but still you could consider it a little drier. The fruit fescues can maintain green color probably better than any grass uh, further into a drop period than any other grass we work with in the cool season grasses. So things are dry, but you wouldn't necessarily want it to get to a point where you're letting it go dormant. Well, Eric, I can take up five other topics with you. We didn't even touch on the winter work that you've led for a while, as well as the great roadside work you've been doing for a really long time. So I'll just thank you for taking the time for your dedication to this work. And I wish you the best in this new position. And I hope we don't lose you entirely, even though I know personally, I know you have had have and have had really great people uh, working with you, which must be the sign of a, a good leader. Really appreciate you taking the time, Eric. No, thanks for having me, Frank. Minnesota is home to Eric Watkins and my friend Ken Ross, president of Frost Spray Technologies. Maybe you've heard Ken and I chat on this program. Either way, when I have a serious application question, I turn to Ken and his experts at Frost Spray Technologies. Frost has everything you need to make your spray day a better day. Visit them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V, dot com. Big thanks to Eric Watkins from the University of Minnesota. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, the plant food company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability, and Frost Inc. spray technology products who strive to make your spray day a great day. You can listen to us on Block Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca, New York by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger. Graphic design, Nicole Rossi. Theme music, Tucker Rossi. And executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me. 
Thank you.